Shalom, shalom. Welcome, welcome, world changers. Great to see y'all. We're gonna we're gonna read from 2 Samuel chapter 1 through 4, and we're gonna read several Psalms as well in this particular uh video. Uh this live stream tonight, today, wherever you are in the world. We're gonna be talking about King David well, being anointed as king over Judah, and we're also gonna be talking about Ish Ishbosheth, Ish <laughs> uh, that's gonna be anointed as king over Israel. And of course, a lot of other very, very interesting things uh, in those chapters as well. Psalm chapter six, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am frail. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are horrified and my soul is greatly horrified. But you, Lord, how long? Return, Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your mercy. For there is no mention of you in death. In Sheol, who will praise you? I am weary of my sigh. I, excuse me. I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. That's a lot of uh, tears. That's a lot of tears. Uh, I flood my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. Notice how, you know, the Lord didn't really, he didn't save David from grief. David still had lots of grief, even though uh, he was uh, anointed and chosen of the Lord. He had the presence of the Lord with him. Uh, he still had to go through that grief. He continues saying, it has grown old because of all my enemies. It has grown old. My eye, basically, the whole idea of crying and weeping. Leave me, all you who practice injustice. Now, in other translations, this would be uh, something, sounds something very, very similar to what Yeshua said in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter seven, excuse me, verses 21 to 23, uh, you know, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Um, let's just check that out. Uh, this is Psalm six, verse eight in the different Bible. Well, actually right here, right in front of us in the new King James, uh, it says, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Again, we see here, uh, the teaching of Yeshua in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, is directly, like, directly right out of the Tanakh, okay? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Different Bibles would put it, you know, similar but different ways. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Go away, all uh, you who do evil. Again, this is, think about how um, Yeshua said, this is what he would say. This is what he is going to say to those who are quote unquote Christians more or less? I mean, they come to they come to him. They profess him as Lord. You know, they believe in him. They call on him. Uh, they have faith to do mighty works. He didn't deny any of that, but they were those who do evil. They were anomians. They were lawless. They did not go by the law of God. They were without the law. Therefore, he promised and he prophesied that he would. Cast them away in spite of their faith. Go away, all you who do evil. Away with me, away from me in, in the NIV, you who do evil. 
ESV, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. CSB, depart from me, all evildoers. NASB, leave me, all you who practice injustice. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. Turn back from me, all you who behave wickedly. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. ASV, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Okay, so, I mean, it's just amazing how we see that Yeshua actually, he didn't, he never taught anything new. It was all out of the Tanakh, all out of the Tanakh, you know, and really that's all they really needed uh, in, in the book of Acts, the New Testament church. That's all they had for their text. They didn't have the New Testament, the New Testament text. They had the, uh, the Tanakh and that's all they had. That's what they preached from. Same with Yeshua. He didn't preach from the letters of Paul. He preached from the Tanakh. That's, that is that is the teaching of our Lord. That is the instruction of our Lord. Amen, amen. So, yes, this is amazing. Moving on with Psalm chapter 6, again, verse 8. Leave me, all you who practice injustice, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my pleading. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be put to shame and greatly horrified. <laughs> I mean, can you, like, it, that's awesome. That's just amazing. Can you imagine saying that with confidence about yourself because of the Lord's presence in your life, because of the Lord's favor upon you? All my enemies will be put to shame and greatly horrified. What a bold statement that is. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be put to shame. Uh, in the footnotes, they shall again be abruptly put to shame. Wow. Again, that's just amazing. Yeah, since we're on a, this is awesome, the Psalms, let's just go over to Psalm chapter 8. The Lord's glory and mankind's dignity. Awesome, awesome title there. For the, for the, for the, excuse me, for the music director on the Getith, a Psalm of David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouths of influence and nursing excuse me nursing babes you have established strength because of your enemies again you know we know that uh, in the gospels uh they say that when the children cried out uh, to Yeshua, this is, it was a fulfillment of this. Uh, just in the footnotes here, just to back up for a second, uh, you have displayed your splendor above the heavens. In the footnotes, you have put, you have put your splendor above the heavens. Uh, you who have displayed, oh, excuse me, for the mouth, the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. You have established a strength, literally. <clears throat> okay. Because of your enemies, to do away with the enemy and the revengeful. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, 
What is man that you think of him? I don't know about you guys, but you know, sometimes if I'm out, if I'm outside at night and I'm away from all the lights and you know, all that, and I'm in, a, I'm in a, a place where I can clearly see the stars and the planets, some of the planets you can see, you know, Jupiter and Mars. And, and I look about, I look and I think about just how small we are. And I think about this, I think about this scripture. What is man? that you think of him and a son of man that you are concerned about him yet you may you have made him a little lower than god now in the footnotes here it is uh in the um septuagint it says angels okay and we know again in the new testament uh it does quote this and it says angels it doesn't say god it says angels, and that's again another um, <laughs> another piece of evidence uh, that we have that the New Testament is more uh, in line with the Septuagint than with the uh, the Hebrew theoretic text. You have made him a little lower than God. Let's see what it says. Actually, and I'm 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 saying it's probably Elohim in the uh, in the interlinear. So that's Psalm 8, verse 5. Uh, actually, I think we're already on Psalm 8. Oh, no, we're not. Psalm 8, verse 5. Um, in the footnotes here. Yeah, it is Hebrew Elohim. It tells us right there, God, Septuagint, Syriac, Targum, and Jewish trans tradition translates as angels. Very, very interesting here. Uh, so in the Hebrew, um, and I assume this would be the Masoretic text, and not all Hebrew texts, but um, Masoretic especially, uh, it, it it says Elohim here. You made him a little lower than Elohim. But in the Septuagint, the Syriac, the Targum, and the Jewish tradition, and Jewish tradition translates it as angels, Malachim. Okay, Malachim, which would be uh, angels in Hebrew. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You have, you have him rule over the works of your hands. You have, you have put everything under his feet. Now, let me just stop here for a second. Like, so a lot of Christians would say, like, this is this is talking about, you know, uh, Yeshua. This is talking about Jesus. Um, you know, you've made him a little lower than the angels. And this is what it says, I believe, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, it says that this is referred to, referring to Jesus. Now, um, there is another way to interpret this. This could mean all of mankind, so to speak, quote unquote mankind. It's because up here, and a son of man, not, it doesn't say the son of man, but a son of man that uh, you're concerned about him. Uh, you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You made him rule over the works of your hands. We read about this in the book of Genesis, where it says that God made man or made Adam and gave him dominion over everything. It says here, you have put everything under his feet. Okay. And that again is Psalm 8, verse 6. Verse 7, all sheep and oxen and also the animals of the field the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas, 
Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 9. Thanksgiving for God's justice. For the music director on Mut Laben, a psalm of David. Mut Laben uh, says here the meaning of, of the Hebrew is uncertain. Okay. Verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Literally, my right and, excuse me, miracles. I will tell of all your miracles. I will rejoice and be jubilant in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. I don't know how many of you who uh, are familiar with the old uh, vineyard song, you know, I will sing praise to your name, Most High. I will sing praise to your name. Reminds me of that. When my enemies turn back, this is verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have eliminated the wicked. You have wiped out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in everlasting ruins. You have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits as king forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples fairly. The Lord will also be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not abandoned those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the peoples. For he who requires remembers them. Now in the footnotes, instead of requires blood here, it says avenges bloodshed. So that, really that's what it means. That's what it means. He who avenges bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the needy. Be gracious to me, Lord. See my oppression from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death so that I may tell of all your praises that in the gates of the daughter of Zion or Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down into the pit which they have made in the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. A wicked one is ensnared in the work of his own hands. Hegayan Selah. In the footnotes, Hegayan says here, perhaps resounding music or meditation. The wicked will return to Sheol and all, and all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor 
the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, Lord, do not let mankind prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, Lord. Let the nations know that they are merely human. Selah. Psalm 10, a prayer for the overthrow of the wicked. By the way, guys, I mean, let me just say this. This is a little, uh, let me just give you a little uh, golden nugget here, okay? This is something I've heard from multiple sources. I've heard this from multiple sources. And, you know, I know that you guys know that, uh, you know, uh, when you're walking with, when you're walking with God, um, a lot of times God speaks to you through multiple sources. And that's one of the ways that like it, it really, really, it, it, it stands out to you. And this is what happened to me recently. I do believe that the prayers of Psalms, and for the most part, the Psalms are the words of Yeshua. They are the words of Yeshua. You see, uh, throughout the Psalms, we have um, Yeshua speaking in the first, you know, first person, so to speak. You know, they pierced my hands and my feet, or, uh, you know, the my my dear friend has uh, you know um, more or less betrayed me this kind of thing uh, in, n- not in those words but you know you know what I'm talking about um, talking about being resurrected too talking about uh, coming back you know to the light of, of the living and so uh, in the in the Psalms we have prayers like this one here is not going to be as I mean. Uh, Psalm chapter 5, Psalm chapter 7, I believe. Those Psalms are very, very, um, let me just say, well, they're kind of, they're pretty harsh. They're harsh prayers against the enemies. And I do believe that that reflects who Yeshua really is. And that's what he was really like. Now, I know some of you will say, but but you know, when Yeshua was being crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But here's the thing. Here's the here's what was what has been brought to my attention through uh, many sources. That particular verse in Luke is not in many of the older um, manuscripts. Many scholars believe that that was added literally forged later so that that was not an original saying of Jesus. Just saying, okay? What I'm saying is I'm not making this up. This is something that even, uh, you know, Christian scholars would uh, would concur. You know, look into it. Uh, maybe one of these days we'll get into uh, a little bit more of these kind of, like there are, we, we spoke about um, the gospel of John and especially John chapter eight, the first 10 verses in the last verse of John chapter seven, John chapter seven, uh, verse 53, all the way through to John, uh, actually it was 12 verses because John chapter eight, verse 11, all the way. Th- so the last verse of John chapter seven, all the way through to the, the 11th verse of John chapter eight is nowhere to be found in any of the early Bibles or the early manuscripts. When I say Bibles, I'm talking specifically about the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, okay? Um, and so, and also we have uh, the the ending of uh, the book of Mark, and we have several verses throughout the Gospels that is 
likewise, um, uh, you know, that fits into that ca- uh, category. And uh, that's one of them where Yeshua said in Luke, uh, in the book of Luke, you know, Father, forgive them for they, for they know not what they do. Just saying, I believe that this should be, um, well, I mean, Christians should be well aware of this and well aware that Yeshua is, according to even Christian theology, Yeshua is the Word of God in human form. And the Psalms are the Word of God. Okay, so when we're reading a prayer from the Psalms, we're actually using that simple logic. We're actually reading a prayer of Yeshua. While I'm here, let's see what we got. We got the Tower Times uh, says Shalom and Howdy. Many blessings to y'all, brothers and sisters. And back to you, brother. Good to see you. Blessings multiplied to you. Vinny says Shalom, everyone. Shalom, Vinny. Good to see you. 1 John, the, the quote-unquote God in Genesis 1 is also Elohim, angels, but the self-existing God in Genesis 2. I know you you mentioned this uh, quite often, and uh, Lord willing, we'll have uh, Onia come on and talk about it. Actually, um, I think I should, you know, I don't, I don't think I'll be overstepping my bounds by saying this, but uh, recently Onia has contacted me and has uh, actually mentioned that. So Lord willing, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, it, I, I don't think Onia will be ready uh, anytime in the near, super near future, okay? Uh, but sometime in the next five, six weeks, maybe. How he, how he uh, maybe, even, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Depends. But uh, yeah. Yeah, so when John says this should make you go, huh? Yeah. Jordan says, Shalom all. Shalom, Jordan. Good to see you, brother. Okay, let's continue reading the Psalms. And you know, as as we read the Psalms, just think of it as if Yeshua himself is speaking in the first person. I tell you, it will blow you, it'll blow you away. It will blow you away. If you read through the entire book of Psalms like that, especially Psalm 119. Uh, you know, it, it will just absolutely, I can remember, uh, this was back in, I'm thinking 1992 or 1993 when, uh, that, that particular little factoid, that nugget of truth hit me. And I started reading the Psalms with that, from that perspective. And it is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And no Christian should have a problem with that. Although the Psalms do speak in a way that a lot of Christians don't really associate that kind of talk or behavior with Yeshua, if you know what I mean, especially when it's talking about uh, uh, like really against the wicked, against the sinners, you know, because a lot of Christians think that Yeshua is just like, oh, lovey-dovey again for all the sinners, you know. Uh, Well, if you want to bend it that way, you might be able to say yes in a certain way. Um, sinners that are open to repentance, yes. But, I mean, hey, even Yeshua himself said in Matthew, again, chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he will reject them. No mercy, absolutely no mercy for the workers of iniquity on the day of judgment, regardless of how much they come to Jesus, profess him as Lord, have faith in Yeshua, Jesus, 
whatever, do mighty works, whatever in his name. Okay. Remember, it's not their own works because I know some people say, well, that's because they were trusting in their own works. That's not what Yeshua said. He said, it's because you are workers of iniquity speaking to them. And, and in the, the very fact that, that Jesus made it clear that these people would uh, said that they were doing these things in his name means they were not doing this in his, they were not doing these things in their own power. You know, it wasn't their own works per se. It was God working through them. And Yeshua had no problem with that. I mean, he did not deny that, but he denied them because they were without the Torah. They were without the nomos. They were anomian. They were lawless. They were workers of iniquity. They were sinners. So let's read this, keeping in mind, hey, well, how would this sound if Yeshua himself was speaking this in the first person? Psalm chapter 10. Why do you stand far away, Lord? Now, as, I, as I read this, I'm thinking about him on the cross, right? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the needy. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire. And the greedy person curses and shows disrespect to the Lord. The wicked in his haughtiness does not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes. Now, let me just, let me just um, stop here for a second. Because, again, coming at this from the point of view of Yeshua, this, this particular phrase, the greedy person curses and shows disrespect to the Lord. Let's check out the footnote here. Um, blesses the greedy man. Uh, so the greedy person curses and shows disrespect to the Lord. It reminds me of, you know, the, the thief on the cross doing what he did. Mocking and all that kind of thing. Verse 5. His ways succeed at all times. His ways succeed at all times. Yet your judgments are on high out of his sight. For all his enemies, as for all his enemies, he snorts at them. Okay, He, sa uh, he says to himself, I will not be moved. Again, this is talking about the wicked. Throughout the generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing, deceit, and oppression. His tongue is harm and injustice. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. He kills the innocent in the secret places. His eyes surreptitiously watch for the unfortunate. Okay, in the footnotes, it says, lie in wait. His eyes lie in wait for the unfortunate. He lurks in secret like a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the needy. He catches the needy when he pulls him into his net. Then he crushes the needy one who cowers. And unfortunate people fall by his mighty power. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, Lord. God, lift up my, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why has the wicked treated God disrespectfully? 
he has said to himself, You will not require an account. You have seen it, for you have looked at harm and provocation and take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Seek out. In the, in the footnotes, may you seek, may you seek, or may you seek his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will make your ear attentive to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that mankind, which is of the earth, will no longer cause terror. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 1. David learns of Saul's death. Now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David stayed two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Okay, this is, uh, this is what they did in those days to, to signify or to show uh, grief, mourning. And it happened when he came to David, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. He said, the people have fled from the battle. And many of the people also have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan also are dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen had overtaken him. When he looked behind himself, he saw me and called to me, and I, and, and I said, Here I am. Then he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Please stand next to me and finish me off, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood next to him and finished him off because I knew that he could live after he had fallen. He could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the band which was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, let me just stop here for a second. Why would he say this? Because this is really not the truth. Why would this man say this to King David? He probably... I think he had a, he had some pride. Okay, he had some. He wanted to look, make himself look good. Hey, you know, I, 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 I finished him off. I finished off your enemy. You know, and I, I, I did it also because it was just, you know, I put him out of his misery. And I think he was probably expecting David to say, you know, congratulate, awesome, the Lord bless you, all that kind of. Thing. I think, I think he was expecting David to rejoice. And to, 
uh, to exalt him. That's what I think what he, what he was expecting. Verse 11, then David took, took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and, and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who informed him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to reach out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, come forward, put him to death. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, your blood is on your head because you, your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have finished off the Lord's anointed. Again, it, it amazes me, people. It amazes me that as wicked as Saul was, I mean, to the point where God himself sent an evil spirit to him, yet... Nobody had any right to touch him. Nobody had any right to do him any harm. Because he was the Lord's anointed. Even when he, he already lost the kingdom. I mean, Saul, Samuel, excuse me, made it very clear to him. Because of his disobedience, he lost the kingdom. Yet he did not lose the status of being the Lord's anointed. And that is amazing. That's amazing. It reminds me of, you know, where it says in the New Testament, the gifts of God are irrevocable. Continuing with verse 17, the subtitle is David's song of mourning for Saul and Jonathan. Then David sang this song of mourning over Saul and his son Jonathan. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the morning song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, the book of Yashar, or the Sefer Hayashar. Verse 19, Your beauty, Israel, is slaughtered on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Mountains of Gilboa, may there be no dew, nor rain on you, or fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of not anointed with oil. From the blood of those slaughtered, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return unsustained. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and delightful in, in, in life, and their deaths have been, uh, excuse me, and, and in their deaths, they were not separated. They were swifter than eagles, and they were mightier than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. Who clothed you in scarlet with jewelry? 
Who put gold jewelry on your apparel? How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan is slaughtered on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been a close friend to me. Your love for me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. 2 Samuel chapter 2. David made, made king over Judah. Then it came about afterward that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Yezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they settled in the, in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and they were and, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. By the way, and that reminds me, let me just say this. The word Mashiach means anointed, right? the anointed one. And in the Hebrew, or I should say, in the Jewish mindset, there were many Mashiachs, okay? And, and there is the Mashiach that is to come in the Jewish mind, in the, in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish worldview, if you want to put it that way. And also they say too, and I'm just going to kind of put this out on the table, so to speak. They say that in order for a Messiah to be a legit Messiah, the people have to anoint him, have to accept him or anoint him and, and, and uh, officiate him as Messiah. And that's what we just read here in regards to David. Right? So David just couldn't anoint himself um, as the uh, king. Remember, uh, anointed is very almost synonymous with the name or with the word Messiah or Christ. Again, verse 4 says, the men of Judah came and there they, they, the men of Judah, the people, anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, it was the men of Yabesh Gilead who, had, who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Yabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. And I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this, this thing. Now then, let your hands be strong and be valiant since Saul, your Lord, is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Ish-bashath made king over Israel. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ish-bashath, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahnaim. Okay, Ish-bashath in the footnotes. 
literally the a man of shame. Okay, and that is referenced also in First uh, Chronicles eight thirty three. Ishbaal. Ish man Bosheth shame man of shame. So Abner had taken Ishbosheth the son of Saul and brought him over to Machaniam, Machaniam, excuse me. Can you imagine naming your son man of shame? Again, <laughs> some of these names, you gotta wonder how, how they come up with it. And he made him and he made him king over Gilead, over the Ashurites, over Yisrael, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went from Mahanaim to Gibeon. With the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, Abner's men on the one side of the pool, and Joab's men, or Joab's on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, or Joab, now have the young men Arise and hold a martial skill practice in our presence. And Joab said, Arise. So they got up and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the, from the servants of David. And each one of them seized his opponents by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called. Elkath Hazurim. Okay, it means the field of sword edges. The field of sword edges with Gibeon. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there Joab, Abishai, and Ashahel. And Ashahel was a swift-footed, was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles that is in the field. Ashahel pursued Abner, did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind himself and said, Is that you, Ashahel? And he said, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn aside from your own for your own good to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his equipment. And Ashahel was unwilling to turn aside from following him. And Abner repeated again to Ashahel, turn aside for your, uh, for your own good from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I show my face to your brother Joab. However, he refused to turn aside, so Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear, so that the spear came out 
at his back, and he fell there and died at the spot. And it happened that all who came thereafter to the place where Ashahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is opposite Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one troop, and they stood on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Should the sword devour forever? Do you not realize that it will be bit, it will be bitter in the end? So how long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from pursuing their kinsmen? Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, then the people of, of Judah certainly would have withdrawn in the morning, each from pursuing his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and no longer pursued Israel, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men then went through the Arabah all that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walking, walked all morning, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab returned from pursuing Abner, but he gathered all the people together, and 19 of David's servants were missing besides Asahel. However, the sons of David had struck and killed many of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men, were dead. And they carried Asahel away and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men traveled all night until the dawn, the day dawned at Hebron. 2 Samuel chapter 3. The house of David strengthened. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David became steadily stronger, while the house of Saul became steadily weaker. The sons, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Israelitess, and the second, Chaliab by Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, 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 uh, you know, this would mean uh, Yah is the Lord, right? Or Yah, Adonijah, or um, Yah or Yahu is the Lord. Yahu is my Lord, I should say. The son of Hagith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglah. His sons were born to David in Hebron. Now it happened that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was, strength, was strengthening himself in the house of Saul. And Saul concubine, whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very ang angry over Ishbosheth's question and said, Am I a dog's head that 
belongs to Judah. Today I show kindness to the to the house of Saul in your uh, to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not let you fall into the hands of David. Yet you call me to account for wrongdoing with that woman. May God do so to me and more so. If, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish the throne of David over, over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba, and Ishbosheth could no longer say in response to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers to David at his place, saying, Whose is that is the land. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. Only I require one thing of you, namely, that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to so this is 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 14. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent men and had taken from her husband, uh, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Okay, uh, excuse me. Ishbosheth sent men and had taken her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her, weeping as he went, following her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. So Abner had a consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord had spoken regarding David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak to David in Hebron, everything that seemed good to Israel and to the house, to the entire house of Benjamin. Then Abner and Twenty men with him came to David at Hebron, and David held a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me set out and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may, may, uh, may be a king over all that your soul desires." that you may be king over all your soul desires. So David let Abner go, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought a large amount of plunder with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, since he had let him go, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they informed Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go on his way, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, 
What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you let him go so that he is already gone? You know, you know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came again, he came to gain your confidence and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out everything that you are doing. Verse 26, so Yoab left David's presence. He sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the well of, of Sirah. But David did not know about it. So Abner returned to Hebron. When Abner returned to Hebron, Yoab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak privately, and there he struck him in the belly, so that he died on account of the blood of his brother Ashahel. Afterward, when David heard this, heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it turn upon the head of Yoab and and on all his father's house. And may, may there not be eliminated from the house of Yoab someone who suffers a discharge or has leprosy or holds a holds the spindle in the footnotes an effeminate man, okay, or holds on to a staff or falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Yoab and his brother Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Yoab and to all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And and King David walked behind the, the buyer. And they buried Abner in Hebron, And the king raised his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a song of mourning for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in in bronze shackles, as one before the wicked you have fallen. As one falls before the wicked you have fallen. And all the people wept over him again. Then all the people came to provide food for David in his distress while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me, and more so if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of David's vow, and it pleased them, just as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood on that day that it had not been the desire of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a leader and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer in proportion to his evil. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was horrified. 
And Saul's son had two men who were commanders of troops. The name of one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimon the Berithite, the son, of the sons of Benjamin. For Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin. And the Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have lived there as strangers until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was disabled in both feet. He was five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan came from Yezreel. And his nurse, his nurse picked him up and fled. But it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and could no longer walk. And his name was called was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means... So the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Baana departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day, while he was talking, taking his midday rest. And they came to the interior of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and his brother Baana escaped. Now when they had come into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him. And they beheaded him, and they took his head and traveled by the way of, of the Arabah all, all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Behold the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who, who sought your life. So the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. But David replied to Rahab, and his and his brother Bana, sons of Ramon, the Berethites, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when the one who informed me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, also viewed himself as the bearer of good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not require his blood from your hands and eliminate you both from the earth? Then David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. Psalm 14. Very, very important psalm because, you know, the apostle, uh, we got Paul that quotes this psalm. And this is part of the common commonly preached quote-unquote gospel that there's none good, no, not one. Or none righteous, no, not one. So let's read this, Psalm 14. Now, as I read this, I want you guys to think about something. Think about 
when it talks about there's none good, no, not one, is it talking about everybody in an absolute universal sense, everybody that's ever lived from Adam until today, including little babies that have never sinned? Or is it talking about a certain group of people? Does it paint a profile for us of a certain kind of people, group of people? Or does it does it just say everybody? Like just everybody all-inclusive, you know, without any exception. Okay? Psalm chapter 14. Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed detestable acts. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of iniquity, or excuse me, all the workers of injustice not know? Who devour my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for the Lord is with a righteous generation. You would put to shame the plan of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Okay, so... Let me see here before we get too far. Let's see. Christina says he is talking about fools that say there is no God. I think, yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, quote, not even one of the fools who say there is no God do good. Not No, not one. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so... We see here that there are two different groups of people, as always. There's there are two different groups of people. There are the sinners who none, all of the righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Okay, um, they none of them do good, right? The people, the sinners, they don't believe in God. They don't even call on God. They don't pray. They don't seek God. They don't do anything. They don't care about God at all. And then you got the righteous. Okay, and so this is this is what we see here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They, not everyone, they, the fools, are corrupt. They commit detestable acts. Those are the ones who it says they do no good. And the Lord has looked down upon the sons of heaven, or the sons of mankind, to see if any who, uh, any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now we know that uh, when we had Courtney on here before, she said that, no, no, this is talking about all the sons of mankind. Well, again, uh, if you look at, if you if you kind of look at it from more of a peripheral vision, if you kind of open up and look at what it says in its entirety, it's talking about all of the sons of mankind who are fools, who do not seek God. Because, you know, we there are people David himself, of course, I mean, David himself, who wrote this, uh, we know 
know that he does not fit this profile. I mean, this is a Psalm of David. We read, we read all the way through the Psalms and through, you know, first, first and second Samuel, how David does good. And he is not, he doesn't commit detestable like that. Okay. And he does seek God. He does call upon the Lord. So this does not describe him. We know there are people who are righteous. And that's why it talks about they, which are the sinners. Okay. The fools, the sinners, they are corrupt. Not everyone. Right. They have all turned aside. Not all the sons of mankind, but the, who are part of this group, they have turned aside. The workers of an injustice, okay, devour God's people like bread. I mean, that's that's horrific. These people are horrific people. For, for there they are in dread. For God is with a righteous generation. So we have two different kinds of people. We have the sinners, the wicked. We have the righteous. So when it comes to the righteous, they do do good. They do see, because they're not fools, because they say there is God, because they don't devour the people of God like bread, because they, they pray, they seek God. They don't fit this profile. David doesn't fit. All of the patriarchs don't fit, fit this profile. The people of God don't fit this pile. So this is the thing is a lot of times, you know, like I say, the, the uh, um, nominal corrupt Christian narrative uses that this particular psalm to, to fabricate a need for Jesus, fabricate a selling point for Jesus. Uh, and they take it out of context, just like Isaiah chapter 64. We, they take the, there is, there are no, there are, all of their righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Again, if you read the whole thing, in fact, if you read the whole book of Isaiah, Isaiah talks a lot about righteous people. It talks about, it, it, he talks about how, even in that very, in that very chapter, Isaiah chapter 64, he says that, you know, the Lord delights in, in the, in the righteous, but he, you know, we have people who don't believe in God, those who don't call on God, those who don't seek God. So of course, um, let me just, let me just put it this way. Simple, simple logic here. If, if you can say there's none who does good, no, not even one, in an absolute universal sense, that means that everything else should fit that as well. Like that, that nobody really understands, including David, including Moses, including the righteous Abel, including Isaiah, including... Jeremiah, including the righteous Noah, okay? And it's, it says here that there's no, if, if this applies to everybody, then sure this, sure this one here applies to everybody too. And we know that that's not true. That's just absolutely not true because this, of course, does not apply to David. David called upon the Lord many, many times. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He wrote about it many times. He sought God many times. So again, 
a lot of people, what they, they suffer from scriptural vision. They don't see the whole picture. All they see, they focus in on that one. There's none. There's no one who does good. No, not one. And they don't see the whole picture. Because you read the the entire book of Psalms, every, it talks about it. How many times in the book of Psalms alone it talks about righteous people? And you see, Paul misquoted this. Paul said, "There's none righteous. No, not one." But it says in the Hebrew, "There's none. There's no one who. There's no tov." No, not one, which means there's no one who does good. Paul makes it sound like the, the right, because righteous in Hebrew, actually, it, it means it's a Zadik, right? The Zadik. So he misquoted that. It's, not, it's quite obvious. He misquoted that. So, as always, there are two groups of people, and you, gotta, you need to ask a question. What is this talking about? Is this talking about everybody in an absolute universal sense, like everybody that's ever lived from Adam until today? Or is this talking about a specific group of people? I think it's pretty clear here. It's talking about a specific group of people. Going nowhere says, uh, is worrying a sin? Generally defined, yes, it is. Um, I mean, some people some people say they worry, but it's not really. I mean, it's more of a concern, or maybe they're afraid of something. But we're supposed to trust in God. We're supposed to pray, trust in God, and rest in Him uh, instead of worrying. Going nowhere says, what is your favorite Christian book? Your favorite Christian author? Um, I, I, I really can't even say that I have one. You know, I, I have, you know, I rarely read any books other than um, the scripture and, and books that like extra biblical books, uh, ancient books. Um, but uh, I, I, Really, I cannot say that I have one. Uh, thank you for asking, uh, going nowhere. One John says, do you believe in a th that a third physical temple will be built before Christ returns? Yes, I do. Yes, uh, it says in the um, last few chapters of Ezekiel, it even gives you like the specific dimensions of it. Like that, that way, you know, it's not like figurative, right? I mean, specific dimensions. Um I mean, apart from that, we have, even today, we have the Temple Institute that um, that is in Israel, that uh, it's all about, it's all about um, preparing for the third temple. Uh, and I do believe that it will happen. It's only a matter of time. Yeah, so it's only a matter of, it's only a matter of time, like, like, Usually when there's a, an organization like the Temple Institute or something like that that's put in place, it's usually because, I mean, it's usually, it's, it's going to produce something. Something's going to come of it. Uh, and I do believe that's what it says uh, in, the, in the prophecies. Yeah, Christina says, uh, he, he would say we, not they, if, we, if it were everyone, I think. Um, 
it would make it more belie- like but you see like in in Isaiah chapter 64 Isaiah says we but he says he he talks about a third person him him uh which is like the the righteous people so um Isaiah put himself in the category of the sinners basically um if you read it like that if you read it like as if it, it, he was speaking of like, in the first person um so it's it's almost non-existent to find something in the scriptures that absolutely without exception means everybody that has ever lived from the first man to the to the last baby being born right this second um you know and this is the problem a lot of a lot of people a lot of christians do look at a lot of verses as being absolute universal. And so I think that's the problem. They have too much tunnel vision. Um, I have been working on a series, I think some of you uh, are aware of this, of Bible study tips. And I'll give you guys a little sneak peek. I've done Bible study tip number one, basically to be open to to learn and to change, you know, because a lot of people are not. Um, Bible study tip number two, to to look at the entirety of Scripture. And not and, and more than the entirety of Scripture, but but also common sense as well. Like, for example, when it says in, in, in Luke chapter 2 that the whole world, that Caesar Augustus, you know, uh, the whole world came to Caesar Augustus to register with him. Well, uh, I think common sense would say that he wasn't talking about the, you know, the uh, the ancient Mayan, you know, the uh, ancient Mayan civilization in Central America. They they did not pack up and travel over land and sea to go to Caesar. I don't think so. I don't think that the, uh, you know, the um, indigenous people of Australia two thousand years ago packed up and traveled over land and sea to uh, to go and register with Caesar. I don't think that the royal family and all of the people of the Han dynasty and the Chinese people packed up and registered uh, with Caesar. So when it says all the world, I think it's talking about all the world of that part of all of the world of Caesar, so to speak, all of the world of Rome or the Roman empire at that point in time. Uh, so that's Bible study tip number two, to open your mind and look at things from like, you know, get peripheral, peripheral vision instead of focusing too much on one passage here, one passage there. Sneak peek. Um, Lord willing, I will post Bible study tip. I have to record it first. Bible study tip number three, which would be to major on the majors and minor on the minors, right? Because we can we can get caught up, and, and it's 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 kind of a, um, a daughter tip, so to speak, uh, to tip number two, which is like to look at the whole picture, to look at everything. Okay, so what what is the what is the common thread throughout all of Scripture? What is something that you can pretty much point to any book of the Bible and say, 
this, this is in there. This particular concept or this particular doctrine or this particular teaching is in this book. That's a major thing, right? And But we shouldn't minor, I mean, we shouldn't major on the minors. What I mean by that is this. There are so many Christians, so many Christian teachers out there. What they do is they take one verse or one passage from one from one book, and then you know, fifteen hundred years later, they take another passage from another from another author of another book of the Bible, and then they you know then they string them together and make a whole entire doctrine out of it. I think that's a that's a bad practice. It's a really bad practice because look what look at like there's a lot of bad teaching that came out of that. For example, the teaching that Yeshua would return and the world would end in 1988. You know, so the teach what they did they did that right. They took a well you know Yeshua said you know uh, when the fig tree blossoms when is basically when Israel uh, comes back. Uh, born again Israel, when Israel becomes a nation again, th- that generation will not pass before the end will come, before the Lord will come back. So they're like, okay, we take one verse here and one verse there. We'll string it all together. doesn't matter how many hundred years in between. How m- it, it, take it out of context and make an entire doctrine out of it. So they're like, well, well, you know, forty uh, a generation is 40 years. Therefore, Israel became a nation in 1948, and 40 years from that is 1988. Therefore, you know, uh, you know, the world's going to end in 1988. Of course, bad doctrine. Bad doctrine because they're majoring on a mind, because they're, they're picking little verses here and there. I don't think we should do that. I think we should read an entire, we should read the entirety of Scripture. And say, what is a, what's the common thread through it, all of this stuff? What is the, what's the recurring theme here? What's, what's God, listen to the drumbeat of God, so to speak. What is he saying in every, every generation? What is he saying in, in you know, what is he saying in, in the book of Isaiah that he's saying in the book of Je- Genesis, that he's saying in the book of Matthew, that he's saying in the book of Revelation? He's saying it everywhere. What is that, what is that that he's saying? And without getting cryptic, I don't think that we should get cryptic, although it's interesting and God can speak through cryptic things, sure. But I mean, to take something that's cryptic and make it major is something that, I mean, make it a major big deal. I think that's, because if God makes it cryptic, he wants, I mean, I'm not saying that it, it's, if God makes it cryptic, I, I don't think that he, uh, his will is for, for people to, you know, take it and, and make it a major big deal. Um, so, yeah. Um, that's one thing I think that Christians do way too much. Appropriate. Good to see you, Roger. There, There is no one. could be translated, there is not one, uh, which would make it clear that it is talking about the fools. Awesome. Yeah, good, good point. Awesome. Um, going nowhere says, how old was Isaac when he was about to be sacrificed? Uh, 37 years old. Um, let's see what else we got here.
Christina, I know you don't have the at Christopher on here, though, but I just kind of caught my eye. I know a couple of atheists that do charity work, but it's always with them as the focal point. And I'm thinking that it it's that self-motivated charity that would be filthy rags righteousness. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I know of a person, too. I'm, I mean, I'm, this this particular man that I know of, um, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's an atheist. If he is, he's not that outspoken of an atheist. Like, he's not that hostile, like how some people are if, you're, if you talk about God. Although this guy kind of is, but not, you know what I mean? He, he doesn't really get into much. Um, but he's a, he's a very kind gentleman as well. And he would fit that category too as being, you know, doing charity, charitable work. Um, and one thought that comes to mind is that atheists outperform a lot of Christians in that way. And it's just, it's just an absolute shame. And it's because of the doctrine that's been going around in church. It's the lawless doctrine of, hey, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to, you don't have to help, you don't have to, you know, help anybody that needs to be help, you know, it needs help because hey, you've got everything you need anyway. You've got the Holy Spirit, you've got salvation. You don't have to do anything. You know, let the world rot. Let the old woman suffer. And I know they don't say that. I know they, they would they would they would deny that if I said it that way to them, but their actions say that. Yeah, Christina talks about Mother Teresa. I don't know, I don't know a whole lot about Mother Teresa. I, I don't know how I wouldn't know how to comment on that. Going nowhere asks a question: Do I have a favorite psalm? Um, all these favorites is very difficult. Again, I feel like a little child. I feel like a little boy in a candy shop going, "Where? Like, do I have a favorite candy? It's all good. Everything's good." Uh, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. They're all. It's 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 really really. Every psalm is really good going nowhere. I, I really can't answer that either. It's a good question, though. Thank you for asking. Christina says, yeah, it's totally dead faith in, in the modern church and very well-spoken dead faith. You know, faith without works is dead. What can dead faith do to you? What can faith do? What can dead faith do for you? I do believe, though, um, I do believe that, I do believe, though, that people can cross, we're talking about, like, um, charitable works. I do believe that there is a threshold that people can cross that would count them in as the sheep as opposed to the goats, Right, you, you think about the the parable of the sheep and the goats, and it's very clear. You know, Yeshua divided; he distinguished the sheep and the goats based upon what they did or didn't do. It wasn't based upon their faith. It wasn't based upon their confession. It was based upon their actions or lack thereof. So I do believe that it is possible for a person 
albeit maybe they're maybe they're missing it really bad in one area of life. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they have like look at Rahab, right? Rahab. Um, I wouldn't doubt that Rahab is completely considered to be part of the righteous, um, and that too. Maybe maybe she repented completely. Okay. Um, So I do think that there could be a, a threshold that people can cross where Yeshua said, where Yeshua would go, yeah, this person is, you know, they really, they, they miss it here. They miss it there. They got a lot of, a lot of places they miss it. But this person really struck it, struck my heart chords in this one particular, because they did treat my people very very well my brothers my sisters the people the poor the widows the orphans um all these people that are needy in spite of their shortcomings this this particular person actually was a sheep so i, I do think that there is a there is a threshold that that, that can be crossed there Christina says, um, the children had maggots in their wounds in Teresa's hospital despite their taking hundreds of millions of donations. She said that suffering leads to godliness. Really horrifying accounts. Wow, I, I did not hear about anything like that. So yeah, um, yeah, definitely that's certainly, uh, it's definitely horrific uh, an account for sure. Yeah, and I did not know about that. I'm not very familiar with with that kind of thing. So with uh, Mother Teresa, that is. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't see that would, I don't, I can't see that going very far. I talk about the sheep and the goats, right? I don't, I can't see that going very far in, in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go to next up. We got Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Okay, let me just see what we got here. Uh, for some reason, we got it stuck on. Here we are. Something's moving now. Psalm 16, uh, Miktam of David. Miktam, possibly epigrammatic poem or atonement psalm. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my, my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the majestic ones. All my delight is in them. You know, let me just stop here for a second. That's when you know you're on the you're on a good you're on the you're on the right side. When you've got like the the saints or like say holy people, righteous people, you have people who are focused on like they're, they're walking with God and you know, their heart's right with God. That's when you know you're in the right place with God. You know, you're with, you're with the right people. The pains of those who have acquired another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. That's, that's, a, that's, that's pretty serious when you don't even mention their name. Like they don't exist. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. 
you support my lot. The measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has advised me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he, he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Again, you know, this is quite, um, I think of Yeshua praying this, you know, you will not abandon my soul, basically in the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He will be raised before that. You will make known to me the way of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Psalm 19. The heavens tell of the glory of God, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. What does that mean? It means, you know, the the creation of God speaks of itself. You, again, we were talking about this earlier. You know, you're outside at night. You're away from the distractions of bright lights or anything like that. You look up to the stars. You know, maybe you're out in the country location or an open expanse or in a park or something like that. You look up. And you see the stars, you see the creation of God. Um, the stars speak for themselves. The, the, the creation of God, the planets speak for themselves. The size of the universe, well, as we don't know the size of the universe, but even that speaks of itself in regards to God. It speaks for God, so to speak. The heavens tell of the glory of God and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. In other words, these heavenly bodies speak are always speaking. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line in the footnote Another reading is sound. Their sound, their sound has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is like a groom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices like a strong person to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. So why wouldn't you want, like, like a lot of Christians say the law of God is like, they, they blaspheme the law of God. They say the law of God is the law of sin or the law of God is bondage or the law of God is a burden or the law of God is a curse. This is blaspheme. That's, that's blasphemy. That's just pure blasphemy. Because the word of God itself says the law of the Lord is perfect. In the footnotes, 
blameless, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord. Again, all these, these, um, these words, testimony, precepts, these are synonyms basically for the Torah. It's it's the commandments and ordinances and statutes of the Torah. That's what it's talking about. And it, you know, we see here a commandment, okay? Judgments. It's the same thing as in is Psalm 119. It's just pretty much different ways of saying the same thing. Um, the testimony of the Lord is, the testimony meaning the word of God that's specifically um, manifest to us in the Torah. That's basically what that, that word means. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much than, excuse me, than much pure gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. No, the Torah is not bitter. No, the Torah is not a curse. Yes, if you violate it, you you will receive a, you will be cursed. But the idea is, it's not it's not hard to align yourself with the Torah. It's not hard. It's easy. Deuteronomy thirty verse eleven. It's easy. It's not difficult. That way, it's easy to receive the blessing. It's sweet. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Well, there's lots of presumptuous sins today. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be innocent, and I will be blameless of wrongdoing, of great wrongdoing. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I remember, i uh, tell you something, true story. I used to go to a church where the pastor would always say this. The pastor would always say, like I think it was like the end of, I forget now, it was the end of every prayer, not the end of every prayer, but almost, at the end of the sermon, when he preached a sermon, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Um, but he was lawless, Torahless. How, how, you know, how do you figure? If you're going to quote this, if you're going to claim this, you might as well you know, you take it in context, right? Claim the whole psalm. I think that that pastor would have been much better off to say in every service, he should have said the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul, right? More desirable than gold, yes, than much pure gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 21. Psalm 21 for the director for the music director a psalm of David Lord in your strength the king will be glad and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice 
and your salvation in the footnotes is victory in your victory. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of pure gold on his head. You asked for life. He asked for life from you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, through your victory. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the faithfulness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find all those, find those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. In the time of your anger of your presence. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. You will eliminate their descendants from the earth and their children from among the sons of mankind. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed, for you will make them turn their back. You will take aim at their faces with, it, with your bowstrings. Be exalted, Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Sneak peek. Um, I do have some people, a couple people in mind that I want to invite. I don't want to mention any names right off the bat. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell you when, when it's confirmed. I don't want to say, hey, I want to do this, and it doesn't happen, right? I don't want to get your hopes up. But uh, there are a couple people that I'm thinking about. I'm just, just putting that out there. Uh, just to let you know that uh, sometime, hopefully in, in the next, in the near future, next week or two, um, we'll have a, we'll have a, a more guests, uh, not including the ones that we that we have on Saturday. Um, so uh, expect the unexpected. Let me put it that way. Uh, tomorrow evening, Lord willing, we will get into. First Chronicles. Okay, we're reading this uh, again. We're reading the scriptures um, chronologically, so we're going to talk about chronological chronicles. We're going to we're going to start with First Chronicles chapters one and two tomorrow, and several more of the Psalms. And so, Lord willing, tomorrow night that's what we're going to do. Um, so that's that'll wrap it up for tonight. All right, guys. As always. You guys are awesome. Thanks again for joining and for listening and for your um, for your questions and your comments. Um, I always enjoy fellowshipping with you guys and and uh, studying the scriptures. I mean, this is studying the scriptures together, right? Reading and studying is just discussing the scriptures together. It's awesome. You guys are world changers. I'm telling you, you guys are world changers. You guys make a difference for sure. Okay, guys, so we'll see you tomorrow evening, Lord willing, starting with First Chronicles. We will come back to 
Second uh, Samuel as as it unfolds in chronological order, and so uh, looking forward to that. One John says, "Thank you, Shalom. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate you." Vinny says, "Christopher, thank you, Christopher. Uh, God bless everyone. Shalom. God bless you more, Vinny. God blessings upon you, multiplied upon you, brother." Mark says, thanks for doing this every day. Shalom. Thank you for coming every day. And appropriate. uh, Roger says, thanks. And thank you very much again, brother. I appreciate you as well. Okay, guys, as always, blessings multiplied to you, uh, wherever you are. If you're on the Western Western Hemisphere, uh, have a great night. If you're on the Eastern uh, or like down under, uh, as Vinny, we know as Vinny's down under, uh, have a great day. Okay, guys, I'll see you again tomorrow night, Lord willing, same time, same place. As always, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you wonderful, wonderful shalom. See you tomorrow.